And welcome back to a fresh episode of Business Growth Show. I'm your host, Sam Dunning, co-owner over at webchoiceuk.com. And if you haven't yet, check out my weekly emails where I share actual B2B marketing, website and SEO tips, useful podcasts, free goodies and more. You can give it a shot over at businessgrowth.email. Joining me today, I've got Grayshan McDonald and Liam Maroney. They're the co-founders of Storybook Marketing. Welcome to the show. How are we doing? Doing, doing well. very well. Thanks for having, Thanks us. having us. You're very welcome. It's uh, it's always a pleasure to have two guests rather than one. So always <laughs> enjoy these special episodes as we don't do them very often. So always good fun. Um, but diving straight into it, we're going to be talking how you can improve your demand generation results from today it should be a spicy and actionable episode where we'll um share essentially everything uh, people tuning in need to know when it comes to demand gen and how you can serve real impact um so that said how important is demand gen when it comes from a b2b perspective today do you want to go first or do you want me to chris you take it away i think demand generation is it's become central to b2b marketing i think it's been a big topic over the last year for sure and i think a lot there's a lot of confusion about what it is because the amount of influence it has seems to expand at one point it used to be the channel that gets leads then it started to incorporate content then it started to incorporate brand influences demand and i think Mm -hmm. really it's it's not so much a function or a channel or even a team as it is a go-to-market strategy So it's really how B2B marketing should be thinking about generating business and revenue and thinking about as a marketing function. Yeah. Mm. And what I'd also add on to that is I think it's one of the aspects of marketing in particular that changes so rapidly um, and so frequently. And, you know, I think if you look at the last year, particularly last year, it really felt like demand gen and B2B marketing was starting to undergo this fundamental shift. Um, there was lots of conversations around, for example, uh, ungating your content, trying to migrate away from typical lead gen models, conversations of that nature, um, and particularly over the last couple of months, as the economy has changed so rapidly, you know, mm-hmm. worlds have gotten really intense for B2B marketers, particularly those in tech, um, you know, budgets have tightened, everyone's yep. sort of in this wait and see phase. I think a lot of teams have started to look backwards in a way with their demand gen and sort of revert back to their comfort zone um, and, and what they know works. And it's sort of bringing to the forefront now this conversation of, great, here's where we are. How do I get more out of this program right now, today, mm. what I've got? Yeah, 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 exactly right. And we're we're gonna get into kind of some some tactics and strategies shortly, which will be will be good fun. Um but I often ask, like we've we've had a lot of conversations around demand gen, around go to market on the show in past episodes, but if and both of you can go for this or one of you can take it, but if you were to sum up like your one liner of demand gen, what would you say it entails? I ooh, it's a big it's a big statement. I think if I were I, I can go first. I think I would say demand generation is the the marketing strategy of 
understanding how people purchase your product and creating a strategy that maps directly to that. It just sounds very, very vague, but that's because that's ultimately like it is, there are very fundamental differences. Creating brand awareness is perceptions about your company. Demand generation Mm -hmm. is figuring out why you buy a product like this and how do you demonstrate why you are a solution for that. Mm. Mm. Nice. And in terms of demand gen, like you've only got to go onto LinkedIn to see that everyone's got their own opinion of demand gen. And if you weren't, if you weren't too well educated on what demand generation actually entails, you could almost get like a hundred opinions at the same time. Cause one person might be saying, Oh, it's just posting content on LinkedIn. Another person might be saying, Oh, it's actually putting paid spend behind your content. So if you're doing like company page content on LinkedIn, for example, getting paid distribution, so you can actually target your ideal clients and make sure it's served to them. Another person might say it's doing a podcast. Another person might say it's doing YouTube. Like everyone's almost got their two cents um, mm-hmm. when it comes to what actually makes up a demand generation campaign. So mm-hmm. in truth, is it all of the above? Is it just some of the above? Is it some of the above plus a bit more? Um, yeah. This is just what I see on my feed like most days. Yeah. And I, I think all of those are great examples of different demand gen tactics, all of which might work some of the time for some businesses. And I think to if I were to potentially consolidate sort of what, what Liam said there, when you really boil it all away, demand gen is an understanding of why your customers buy you, how they buy you, and how you reach them. And when you look at it from that perspective, then that you can start to slot in those different tactics, which might be podcast, posting on LinkedIn, sharing content, it all has to stem from that understanding of your audience. And if that's how you reach them and how they buy you, then great, you know, post on LinkedIn, share content. Mm, mm. So you touched on a a very relevant topic just now, Gracian, in terms of especially in B2B tech, um, SaaS and so on. A lot of companies have been hit hard, especially this year, 2023 time of recording, uh, a lot of layoffs. And a lot of organizations are almost going back to what they know. They're perhaps cutting added expenses, whether that's staff or out external teams when it comes to brand, when it comes to field marketing, when it might come to demand gen as well, and perhaps going back to more traditional channels when it comes to customer inbound acquisition to get those demo requests or inbound consult requests through things like Google paid search, review sites, the devil they know, let's say. Um mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts on there? Do you think demand gen is rightly so when companies are giving it the cut or they're they're kind of spending less on building their brand and reaching out to people that don't know them yet, whereas just going for the small chunk that might be in market? Yeah, I know Liam's got a great perspective on this. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, we've a lot of sympathy for it because we've been in exactly those positions. And, you know, once budgets get cut back and you're asked to like, you need to get as much efficiency out of it, it's very natural to default to what you can measure best, which is, it's very logical to protect your job. It tends to not translate quite as well when you're trying to do the best kind of marketing because podcasts are a perfect example that are one channel that's very, very hard to measure and yet very, very effective. But I think it really is about like the mix of demand capture versus demand generation. And a lot of the channels like paid search are an example of ones where you know, you should be maxing out the most efficiency you can get out of a channel where people are 
already near to the bottom of the funnel. Like that's the obvious place to go. And it is the logical place to go. Like if you've got limited budget, you want to make sure that's where you're as effective as you can be. You're capitalizing on every keyword that you can, but also making sure that you're aware that there is a very immediate and quick limit comes to that. Like there's only so many people searching for a product like yours on Google. And the mistake people make is they see a channel like that and they say, mm. oh, look at all the demos we can get of these people who are hand raisers. And then you cap out the number very quickly. And what you start doing is you start loosening the keywords. Well, okay, maybe it's less product specific and the, 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 the efficacy goes down. So it's really just understanding that there are definite demand capture channels but they run out quickly because, like you said, there's only so many people in market. It's about yeah. how do you make sure that you're also investing in those people who are not yet in market and educating people who are going to be in market at some point. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and this is a bit of a loaded question. I promise I'll, I'll stop, stop squeezing you. You can get into action wars in a sec. But um, do you think you've got to be a certain size of company? for demand generation to be most effective. Um, because when it comes to capturing demand, for smaller organizations, you could probably just sit back and use channels like paid search, review sites, organic search, and similar, um, and just capturing those prospects that are literally serving, searching for your solution, your offer, might be fine, because that will drive enough um, leads for, for your sales team if you're a smaller org. But you, I imagine it gets to a certain point on your size where that's not effective enough, then you've got to start hitting that market that doesn't yet know about your offer that might not be in market. And I guess that's where demand gen becomes more, more effective. Yeah. It's, a, it, it's an interesting question. I think, I don't think there is a particular size. I'm curious your thoughts, Christian, because I think it, it comes in very different formats because capturing demand, one method of capturing demand is, paid search. It's scooping up where people are actively raising their hands. Another one is reaching out to people at the right time and in the right way, which doesn't necessarily have to happen in the form of leads. It can happen in the mm -hmm. form of outbound motions, which people don't often talk about. And I know, yeah. Gia, you have a much better perspective on that one than I do. Yeah, I came from this world before I got into demand gen. Um, and I think it's one of the underappreciated uh, cost-effective methods of doing demand gen, particularly for smaller companies, early stage companies. Um, it's also one of the most cost effective ways of testing messaging in new target audiences and new categories. But to Liam's point, like it's, it's a great way to begin um, both capturing whatever existing demand there is um, in your market already, as well as generating new demand by spreading the awareness of your company and your message in a really cost effective way. Mm. And a really immediate way to test your messaging in real time and get feedback about what is and is not resonating. Interesting. Um, a lot of marketers hate the idea of outbound, right? Um, you've only I got to listen why. to I've always Neither do I. Like, it's a channel and yeah. it does work unless you're, like you mentioned there, unless your messaging is off or your sales reps aren't trained properly or these kind of things. But you've only got to listen to someone like Chris Walker's podcast and it sounds like outbound cold email cold calling is like the devil when it can work fine when it's done right in my opinion I think, yeah and, and I think and I, I could be wrong about this but part of me sometimes feels that the reason there's that um kind of unfair perception of outbound is historically outbound teams were within the sales function and I think 
when you think about it from the perspective of this attribution idea and trying to achieve perfect attribution, I think what's unfortunately happened in the past is there's this competition between sales and marketing for attribution. And when an mm. outbound team is on, on the sales department, did it really come from the outbound team or was that demo request something that the marketing team did? Or can we all accept the fact that rising tides lift all boats and everything is sort of working together um, and amplifying one another? And that's not to say that, um, I know it's a debate right now, and that's not to say that SDR teams should always be on marketing. I think there's a case for both, but part of me feels that that's why there's that pessimistic perception of outbound teams from the marketing department. Um, mm. I think that's where it stems from. And I would love to change that because it's such a powerful engine when those two functions can really work together. And oh, I think yeah. that it's also that there is a lot of bad usage of SDR teams against marketing leads. Like it, it is a bad experience for everyone to just download an ebook and suddenly you get hounded or the kind of spray and pray generic messaging for everyone where everyone's inboxes get flooded. It's... It's this idea that I think a lot of where there's a bad perception within marketing towards outbound is that it feels like outbound is a bad way of acting on marketing, whereas what it should be doing is acting alongside marketing. Like if you're warming up these audiences, if you're showing thought leadership, outbound motion should be going alongside that, not directly following an interaction. Like that's where I think it feels like it's it's almost like you're being tracked down and hunted by a team and it's aggressive and it's it's like junk mail, whereas it can be just complimentary and pointing at people who are better educated about your brand. Yeah, I think it's all fair points. I mean, mo a lot of the time outbound comes down to timing and messaging and the chances are not everyone's going to go to the channel you hope they go to to find your offer. Um, so that's when outbound can be so effective, like you say, when it's done right. Um, mm -hmm. I've got an interesting experiment that I'm launching in a solo episode on this podcast very soon of how we close quite a significant deal from just outbound calling. Um, so I'm excited to launch that one, but yeah, I digress. We, um, let's get tactical. We've teed it up the conversation enough. We're going to share kind of how we can start improving demand generation results from today onwards. Um, so what are some of the first steps? What's like the foundational layer? What's the, the first things that we should be doing to make this happen? Yeah. I think the best place to start is look at what you've already got. So what do you already have that you can make better use of? Where I tend to look first is your database. So what do you have in your existing database? What kind of marketing and nurturing can you do to your database? What kinds of segments do you already have in that database? Is it a cold? Is it kind of a stale audience? How warm is that audience? I've found many times that when you really go after what's in your database and trying to, as they say, I know it's cliche, but squeeze more juice out of the orange and what more can you get out of what you already have? I always think that's the, one of the best places to start. And, and similarly mm -hmm. for the folks that have, you know, like a PLG model, expired free trials, things of that nature, that can be a great place to go and say, you know, what, what can we do here? What kind of marketing can we do here? Um, you know, where can we generate uh, some immediate pipeline out of what we've already got. I don't know if there's any other perspective that you have on that, Liam, in terms of, you know, looking at what you already have. Yeah, I think there's there's things like the database. That's definitely one. The other part, I think, is then looking at how things are already working within the system. 
And I think it, it's it's one of those kind of underappreciated things. A lot of marketing, especially in demand gen, people think that if we need to get new business, it's we need to do new things as opposed to the slightly under-celebrated look internally at where you could be more efficient. Like it is the really obvious place to start. A really big one is that sales handoff. That's usually where you see the biggest drop-off in efficiency. And there's a load of reasons why, but the starting point is figure out where the efficiency stops. Are you hitting your leads? Are you hitting your MQLs? Are they not converting into meetings? Are the meetings not converting into ops? Once you start to isolate where those points are, you start to be able to come up with reasons of, well, why would that be? Are they the wrong audiences coming in? Are they not yet ready? Are they misunderstanding things about the company? Are there things you could be doing? Is it an internal issue where we're just not handing off in the right way as quickly as we need to? Those things, as simple as they they might seem, they can uncover an enormous amount of inefficiency that you can fix very quickly. It almost feels like the most obvious things in marketing aren't obvious. Because certainly with me, like the things that are right under my nose is what I miss. And then I go after the new shiny objects and then realize that I'm missing like a ton of things that could be helping our business growth immediately. And like you said there, your existing database um, and looking, like you say, perhaps trials that hadn't converted past customers, past clients, like that, that could be a goldmine of short-term revenue, couldn't it, if you harness it right? Yeah. And we see this a lot. This is a lot of where we work with clients where we find that they build things and then they have pressures internally. They've got to launch new campaigns. They've got all these other things they're focusing on. And then you never return back and get that time to sit down and go, let me look through it and find, is it as efficient as it could be? They're just, it's not a, time is not a very, uh, it's not a very uh, plentiful thing in B2B marketing for sure, especially mm -hmm. for leaders. Are you tired of the competition stealing your potential clients and website traffic just because they rank higher than you on Google for the main services or products you offer? Or maybe you're already investing in SEO or marketing, but your website's failing to convert your hard-earned visitors into a steady flow of qualified sales leads. Or perhaps you already work with a web or SEO agency, but they're just not getting you the results they promised. Let's fix that. Get in touch with us over at webchoiceuk.com. That's webchoiceuk.com. Mention the podcast and set up a call with Sam to see if we can help you with results today. In, in terms of sales handoff conversion, let's talk a little bit more about that. So we're talking about like the leads that you are getting in already how effective they're going from like book a demo or book a consult through to like the stages in between up to one revenue and kind of what that percentage is like based on each channel or. Yeah, I, I think it's um, it's what we often see at least is a metric of efficiency and just how efficient that handover is happening. Um, it's this idea, at least from my perspective, that, you know, that you don't want to have a leaky bucket. If you're looking for what more can you get from what you already have, we often see, unfortunately, that that handover process, things get missed, things fall through the cracks, things are getting converted wrong and then lost in the system, or right. maybe they're just being hit one time with a follow-up once a new demo or you know some type of request comes in and then nothing happens after. So mm. it's that really harnessing what you've already got um, and really ensuring a 
you know, efficient flow and efficient handoff process from the time it comes in all the way through to that sales conversation, making sure you get as many there as you can. That's, of course, you know, implying that there's going to be some that are disqualified. There's going to be some that aren't great fits. We're not saying that you should just push every demo request that comes in to a sales call because then that's sure. going to, you know, inflate your pipeline. Um, but it's just making sure that you don't have a leaky bucket there, that things aren't slipping through the cracks. Yeah. Yeah. And are there any kind of, you mentioned a couple there, but are there any common mistakes or any kind of best practices you feel when it comes to that um, kind of prospect on your website and I guess quickly filtering whether they should go like straight to, I know there's this dilemma as well. I digress a bit here, but sometimes companies want to send leads that demo requests that come into SDRs or whether they should decide whether to send it to an AE, um, whether there's the direct calendar booking with a tool like Chili Piper or Calendly or whether they should fill out a form, wait 48 hours and then hope for the best. Mm-hmm. Um, like these, these are just things that I see. Are there any other like common issues and like easy fixes for, for sales handoffs for inbound? Yeah, I I think you mentioned one of the biggest mistakes I see, which is creating friction in the booking process by going back and forth requesting times. Um, And I'm sure there's people out there who would disagree with me on that, that some people like the personal interaction of I'm free this time. I can't meet then. I got to, you know, go pick my kid up from soccer practice. Some people I think like that personal rapport. However, more often than not, I've seen it create friction in the booking process. And then that's how things just kind of get deprioritized. People's inboxes get cluttered and it falls to the back burner. So what you mentioned about like a Calendly or Chili Piper, it's one of the best um, practices I think I could ever recommend for efficiency there. And then in terms of sort of that routing process and is it an SDR? Is it an AE? Do we automatically convert it? How is it qualified? I think you know, I think automation is a double-edged sword. I think there's a point of diminishing returns when it comes to trying to automate a lot of that sort of conversion mechanism and assignment mechanism. And I think there's always going to be a human element, a human layer of, you know, the system saying that it has this type of tech stack, you know, they're based here, they have this many employees, so they're probably not a fit for us. I think having a human layer on that is really important. Um, mm. And so I guess the, the recommendation would be, you know, don't over index on trying to automate everything. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we, we're probably all guilty of this, like filling out a demo or consult form quickly, putting something in. And like you said, it could be that we put one point, whether that's the current CRM we use or something like that. And I suppose if a company automatically disqualifies you because you've put one piece of tech that doesn't hit their system and it turns out like you've spe- a sales rep speaks to this company, it's actually a massive enterprise opportunity and they actually use a range of systems and just because your tech system has filtered them out, you've kind of missed out on a big op. So I'm sure that does happen, especially in big companies, quite a bit. There's also people like when people talk about the demo request form, they they often talk about like, oh, am I adding too many fields? Am I creating friction? That's usually not the problem. Funnily enough, like you, there's actually like studies show that the more fields you add, the more likely they are to convert on a high value form. Where we've seen people go wrong a lot is actually exactly that, that like the way you've structured the form kind of almost, if you're being lazy and you're trying to quickly fill out a form, you might hit a drop down and just choose the top thing in that drop down list. You could end up disqualifying yourself because you're confused about like how this form should be filled out. Like it's make sure the form is easy to give information and also don't give people 
like a weirdly, you know, we've seen it like where people say like, choose your revenue range. And it's like, not to 500 million and 500 million to 700. Like those are just odd groupings. And it's like, mm. just don't make it confusing for people to fill out forms. Yeah. 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 Fair point. Fair point. Okay, cool. That's those two points. What What's next in the in the driving de- demand um, yeah. tactics? I think the only other, um, I, or I guess the one that most readily comes to mind in terms of making use of what you already have, um, to a point Liam sort of raised a few minutes ago around, you know, we tend to be led by this shiny object syndrome and like, you know, we just did this, like now let's move on and do something else and then let's go here. And so sometimes things like your content, that's really great content, really well produced. It can sort of have this one and done promotional moment. And so in terms of looking at what you already have, I would suggest looking at the content that you have, you know, blogs, case studies, high value assets, you know, videos, whatever you have, looking at the content that you have and seeing what can you repurpose? What, again, Mm. again, what can you do with what you already have? Um, And in terms of creating new content, if none of the content that you have, let's say you've just repositioned, you know, you've, you've launched a new product and what you have just doesn't really apply anymore. I think a great place to look is internal SMEs from a content creation perspective um, to start exhibiting that thought leadership in a really organic and cost-effective way. And so that would sort of, from my perspective, be the last layer of look at what you already have. Um, But then to your question from there, where we would suggest starting to move is really understanding the performance of your program, what's working and what's not. Um, and as you pointed out, Sam, like, you know, sometimes the most obvious things aren't that obvious. And when you really take a step back, um, which we know is a luxury for a lot of marketing teams, particularly dimension folks to be able to do having a really clear sense of what is working and why it's working, that is really important to then decide how you can be really strategic and selective with the budget and the resources that you have. Okay. And and when we say performance, we're talking about kind of paid spend on channels like LinkedIn ads to to ICP with targeted messages. Uh, are we talking about something a bit different, or what are we looking at? Uh, I mean, it's a combination of all of them. I think a lot of it is is deciding what what you define as working, because that's where people get a lot of the things wrong. Where you can say, look how many leads we got, as opposed to how many of those leads actually converted into an outcome and why and what was the true cost of an outcome. So it's making sure you don't have short-sighted view. And that's a big problem. And often this is a leadership problem where if marketing is being held to a very short-sighted goal, like hit the lead volume, hit the MQL goal, and then everyone is surprised when that doesn't materialize. Like that's where the important part is look beyond it and say, well, what are the outcomes and why mm. were those outcomes and which channels drove the most outcomes? Because to your point, sometimes it's not lead gen. Sometimes it is the one that, you know, like outbound, like outbound is another great use case. And it's, it's funny that outbound keeps coming back, but I remember plenty of times where I was certainly as an in-house marketer, I, I kind of was almost competing with outbound you saw it as like the channel that if that one worked therefore it implies my one did not work which like grace i mentioned is just not how it works it is like a rising tide outbound should get better if marketing is doing a good job alongside like everything should improve along with itself not against each other like Mm. you know like you shouldn't challenge channels against one another too often um i we've seen it happen before where social gets targeted against events 
Like they're not the same. They both don't work the same way. They're not achieving the same outcomes. And sometimes you turn one off and the other stops working. So like, it's not, it's not starting to look at things as channels to compete against one another, but what is it for and is it achieving the outcome it's supposed to? Yeah. Makes sense. Do you, I know you guys, you folks have audited quite a few demand gen campaigns. Uh, is there a common suspect that often comes up on the on the paid ads front that quite often is saying, "Oh, we're shipping a lot of lot of ad budget here, but it's not really producing." Yeah, it's producing X, but it's not actually producing revenue on the bottom line. Yes, <laughs> for for a few reasons, I'm sure you can think of a few. I like some of the common ones are trying to too thinly distribute budget across too many different things. Um, that's a big one where you might have mm-hmm. 10 audiences getting a small budget when you probably should have been concentrating on one or two. Like that's a very common use case where when you start to break it into how many different places it got placed, of course it was skimming the surface and doing very little else but that. That's a very common one. What, what yeah. pops to mind for you, Jay? I think kind of on a similar point, the conversion rate of uh, paid traffic and, and, and paid paid search and, and just things driven by paid. Um, it, we've seen teams spend a lot of money and it never converts at the same rate as organic. Um, so I'd say that's another, another big one. Mm. I suppose it just comes down to really assessing and auditing, like we were saying at the start, like, how well your current campaigns are performing and then understanding like what the bottom line is from each one. And I think it's, it's starting to, it is following the journey. That's really one of the big things, especially on paid. I remember there was, there was a particular client we worked with where they, they had a very large paid budget and they were generating lots and lots of leads. But on the surface, if you looked at it purely from a cost per lead point of view, the channels that they thought were their best performing were actually producing the most expensive like outcomes because so few of them progress. So like cost per lead is one of the worst benchmarks for trying to determine whether something actually is working. It's cost per outcome is what you should be looking at, like cost per meeting or pipeline or qualified pipeline, whatever, depending on your deal cycle length. But it's it's not stopping at look how many we got and look at the names. It's what happened afterwards. Yeah, it's. I mean, this this is a massive conversation in itself, especially with paid. Like, I mean, we we see organisations invest tons into Google Paid Search, Google AdWords, but then they don't retarget that traffic, so they're paying like five, ten dollars, maybe more per high intent click. But that prospect's probably not going to book a demo all the time on their first click. And then you, if you're not retargeting them where they're hanging out, like LinkedIn, and kind of educating them, position yourself as the authority in that space. Like, that's just a ton of wasted cash just because you didn't know how to retarget or remarket to this prospect properly. Speaking of which, another really common thing that we see is actually, it's in the underlying strategy. Who are you targeting? We've lost count of the amount of times where everyone says the, well, we want to target the CMO because the CMO is the most senior person in the deal, as opposed to who's the person who's most likely to take a demo and evaluate the tool. And it's that it's, it's marketing trying to think too closely to what sales leadership is telling their AEs, like go up into high, as high into the organization as you can do. But I mean, you talk to any CMO, they're not taking tech demos. They're asking their team to, because they trust their team more too. Mm, Fair point. Yeah, yeah, that's that's an interesting point, actually. Okay, cool. 
Um, so looking through the the paid channels, looking through the setups, and and understanding that properly, um, where do we go after that? Well, you might like this one because it's the website. I think that's <laughs> that's the obvious place. Uh, I mean, your website is your most effective demand generation asset by far, because it's the thing that almost everything will pass through to some degree, excluding like, but even in that case, people will use your website either to convert on or to validate whether you are worth responding to an outbound message on. Mm. For sure. For sure. I think it's one of those things like, I I mean, I ramble on about websites all the time on, on solo episodes and quite literally say it can be your very best or very worst salesperson, depending on how you treat it. And like you quite rightly said, it's depending on the type of traffic that's coming to it, whether it's a warm prospect that's perhaps been referred or a colder prospect that's perhaps stumbled upon you for the first time um, can be massively different because that colder prospect is going to want to quickly understand kind of what you do, the problem you fix, how you help, see that proof of results, get that trust built, um, understand kind of probably want to check out your pricing page and then make a decision on whether they're comfortable in, in speaking to, to your sales team, whether they're going to book a demo or book a consult, take that next step. So like you say, if you're neglecting the the way you design it, build out the messaging and more, it's a, it's going to be a huge impact on your overall marketing spend. Yeah. And, and exactly what is its job? Like too often, like you said, there's, there's no pricing page. It's trying to use it as a, a bait and switch tactic, but in reality, it's a salesperson. Its job is to give you all the information you need to explain it as clearly as possible and to help navigate you to where you can get more of the answers that you need. And very often they're all too many websites are built the same where they follow like, oh, well, this is how you build a SaaS website as opposed to what do we know about our audience? What language will resonate? And the last part is make sure you write it in language that they're going to respond to, not language you like to use that like overly buzzwordy, internal jargon filled, like the same words that everyone else puts in every headline on every website. Mm. I think many ta- tech and SaaS companies are guilty of that. Um, oh, yeah. Kind of you, you go onto their homepage, you read their homepage headline and you've looked at it for 10 seconds. You're still not quite sure what it is they do or how their offer helps you. Or another thing I see is, Sometimes companies will just have their headliners. We just got funding or we just won a G- G2 top 10 award. It's like, that's great. But isn't that better for like your company and your investors and your internal team rather than kind of what you're actually going to offer to your prospects, aka the people that are going to buy your stuff? One of the most memorable things I heard from a CRO once when we were redesigning a website was uh, we, we were trying to, we were arguing over the headline about what was the right headline when people landed on the site. And unsurprisingly i was advocating for like the marketing centric one and he was like well yeah but we need to write this for what the investors will like because they're going to prefer this language i'm like i think we're missing the mark on this one just a tiny bit yeah that is that would probably trigger me for sure (laughs) (laughs) it it must be a strange thing though when you're that reliant on getting cash from investors that you put them ahead of the people that are actually going to buy your stuff yeah evening out like it's funny because it changes depending on what the environment is. But going back to like what your website is for, it is a demand generation sales enablement asset first and foremost. But that said, it will also, depending on the timeline, like some of the most traffic you'll ever get to your website is on your careers page and your about page. Mm-hmm. So you have to make sure that it like satisfies the right audiences, but not lose sight of who it's for. Like, sure, you may need to get your Series C funding, but not at the expense of how people understand what your product does. Yeah. 
Are there any other pages that you see? I mean, I've got plenty of opinions on this, but are there any other pages or parts of websites that you feel are often neglected? What do you think, Jerry? Hmm. While you're thinking, I think the the company culture page is not it's not as 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 thought through as it could be. I think people underestimate how important liking the company and wanting to buy from that company. That's a good, honest company. I mean, I I've lost I've lost count of the many times I was at a company where I had to go to the HR team and say that person on the about us page hasn't worked here in like a year and a half. Mm. <laughs> like there's nothing yeah. authentic about that page whatsoever. Um, but people do like, especially in marketing, you, you buy not just the best solution, but the solution you like the most. And if you like the people who work there and you like what they do, that's an important differentiator that people overlook a lot. Yeah, for sure. Like you say, the, the about page or the team page is quite often like the second or third highest visited page when you look into a lot of b2b and tech websites like it's really surprising so if it's like we talked about earlier if it just talks about how great your company is the award you've won and stuff like that and i think probably one of the most the biggest issues i see is that site websites just don't aren't built to resonate with ideal clients so when you put your target market first it just shifts everything in terms of design messaging and and more um yeah I could I could talk for probably two days on this one alone. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's a big one for sure. Um, but we better better keep things moving. So that that's the website side of things. Is, is there anything after? Does it stop at the website? No. So I think you know from there, and and once you've optimized where you can on your website, and you've got a really clear sense of what's working and what's not. Typically, there's a sort of budget reallocation there um, from a paid standpoint. Once you have clarity on this is working, this isn't, maybe we can reallocate some budget into this. And to the points Liam made, it's it's what does working mean for you? And that really clear definition is not always generating leads. Maybe it is to generate awareness. Maybe is it to drive more people to your site? So is that tactic or channel working in the sense that it's accomplishing what you want that channel to be accomplishing. And I think that's a really Mm. important distinction. So I think moving from there and thinking about how you can make better use of the budget that you have, the last sort of like immediate lever that we see teams have is to bring it home outbound. Um, And I think there's, it's important to kind of take a step back and looking at your outbound function and thinking, are we targeting the right audience with the right messaging? You know, could we be doing this more efficiently? Could we be doing this, you know, at a better scale or a different scale? And so like we kind of talked in the beginning, outbound is a really cost effective, essentially free way of both capturing the existing demand in the market. It kind of goes back to that concept that not all of your target market is going to be in market at any given time. So how can you effectively capture the ones that are while spread the awareness of who you are to the ones that aren't? And outbound is just such an effective way of doing that, particularly when budgets are limited. Of course, it's not completely free. You need to pay the salaries of the SDRs or BDRs and you need a couple. But I think the misconception with a lot of teams is that you need to have this high performing demand gen engine that's generating leads before you can make a case to bring on SDRs and BDRs that'll field those. And it sort of undersells the value of this outbound program and how that can really jumpstart and fuel a lot of your demand gen that then pays those dividends in the forms of like leads and demos. Mm. 
It's a funny one, I think, with Outbound, because companies tend to be super for it, and those will be some of the first hires they'll take, the SDRs, BDRs, especially if they get investment and they are a company that's into Outbound, they'll, they'll probably get a panel of SDRs, BDRs, and feed, they'll be feeding leads for the AEs, and then they'll probably do some paid ads. Or as, on the other hand, you might get a company that's completely against Outbound, and they, they just go full swing kind of capturing some demand with ads and doing a demand gen campaign and, and that kind of stuff. It, it usually tends to be a company's extremely one way or extremely the other from, yeah. from what I see. Yeah. And, and I think one of the biggest debates right now is sort of the future of the outbound team and the future of the SDR function. We were actually just having this conversation the other day, Liam and I, about how personally, I don't think the SDR function will ever go away. I think the tactics will always keep changing. Like, I think we may be sort of mm. cresting to the effectiveness of email, but we're seeing all kinds of other tactics, you know, around LinkedIn. Um, and I think the tactics are always going to change. And the way that you get people's attention is always going to change. It's always going to look different. If we think back to 10 years ago, it was almost exclusively calling. And so the way that you get people's attention and the way that we interact with each other is always going to change. But the idea of a team of people whose entire focus is going out, talking about your product and introducing your product to people who might need it or be in market for it. I don't think that concept is ever going to go away. Mm. Yeah, fair. And and just to wrap things up, how we've we've touched on it a bit, but how does a demand gen campaign? How does that influence uh, an outbound campaign? Well, you you only need to talk to a sales rep who's trying to sell a product that has no brand awareness or any like affinity in the market, and they'll tell you exactly how problematic having no demand mm. gen is. Like it, I think the misconception is that demand gen starts, leads come, hand over to sales, sales follows up. Like you know, they it is to make it easier to outreach to people so that they have heard of you, they understand what you do, they understand how you do it, and marketing is that that groundswell that helps that effort a lot of the time. Mm. Or alongside that, it's also helping the outbound motion point towards an audience that is much more likely to be receptive to that message because you're saying these are the audiences and companies we've been marketing to, they're engaging with it you should be spending your time focusing on them as opposed to this other cold audience. And in theory, you should have a better hit rate from those efforts than you would from a cold audience. Yeah. I've always thought, like, with that said, I've always thought if, uh, if what I'm doing, if what we're doing, if web choice ever f- fell through and I had to, to be a sales rep to get some cash, I just work for a company like Gong. Like everyone knows Gong. You've literally just got to say, I'm working with Gong on a call. And it's like, Oh yeah. Market leader in sales intelligence. Yeah. I'll talk to you. It must be so much easier than working for a startup that's like brand new in that sales intelligence space. Just giving Gong PR, free PR here because it's the first <laughs> brand that came to my, heart, my mind. They're not even a sponsor. <laughs> not yet a sponsor. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's that's it. Anyway, anyway, really enjoyed the chat. Thanks very much for running through all things demand gen and, and how um, companies can start implementing these things to see results from today onwards. So with that, please do share more, Graciana Liam, about your company, about how people can learn from you, connect with you, and if they want to get in touch. Yeah, sure. We are Storybook Marketing. We are a boutique demand generation agency. And where we specialize is helping to design, to build, and to manage demand generation programs for B2B companies. So if you either are beginning in demand generation and you really want us to do it right and get it from the get-go, 
talk to us. If you've already got a program that you think could be working better or has stopped working as well as it once did, reach out to us because we, we, we've been in those seats. We know how to do it. We know how the tools work. We've, we are the blend of strategy from being leaders, but we still know how to roll up our sleeves and get into the tools when we need to. Yep. And the best way to reach us would be the form on our website, storybookmarketing.io. Awesome. Good stuff. We'll put all of those links on the show notes at businessgrowth.marketing. And I want to thank you both once again for coming on. Yeah, this is great. Thank Thanks you. Us. No worries at all. And as always, if you enjoyed today's episode, a quick rating or review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts is much appreciated. Or if you're tuning on YouTube, a subscribe goes a long way. And we'll catch you on the next one for more no BS B2B marketing tips to grow your business, grow your revenue. Catch you soon.